So, we are continuing this morning with our series on Jesus at the centre. And we're moving on to looking at today at John chapter 6. So, I'm going to be um, picking out some bits from John chapter 6. We're going to be reading it at a moment. Um, but really, that my, my aim this morning, I've got about 30 minutes of your time. And my aim this morning is to really to help each one of us connect with God in a new and fresh way. This whole chapter, John chapter 6, is about Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life. That he is the one who satisfies our hunger. And the question I suppose I want to start with this morning, and really to think about all the way through here, is how hungry are you for God? How hungry are you? Are you hungry for more of God? I know I am. I know each day I, get, I, I find real satisfaction and real um, sustenance when I spend time with God. This, this time of worship that we just had, I don't know about you, I feel refreshed already. I feel like I can take on the rest of the week. But worship is a wonderful way of getting um, refreshed and really being satisfied in God. So let's have a look then at John chapter 6. And I'm going to, as I say, pick out a few bits. They will come up on the screen. And if you want to put the first slide up there, um, and it will be clear, hopefully, as we go through which bits I'm going to read out. So if you've got Bibles with you, start from John chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he'd performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up a mountainside and sat down with the disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jump to verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Okay, now to verse 24. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? It always makes me laugh when you, hear, when you see things like that. Because you think of 5,000, well, more than 5,000 people going to this place, and then they ask a question. Which one of them asked that question, I wonder? But there we go. Jesus answered this. He said, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. 
Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the work that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked him, what miraculous signs then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. Verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last, at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? And then down to 47. Very truly, I tell you, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you can eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I'm just going to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your word as a man to die on the cross, to take away the sin of the whole world, that we might come into that wonderful relationship with you that we might be known as children of God. And that is what we are. Just pray, come by your spirit right now. Speak into our hearts, Lord, as you already have been doing. That we might go from here renewed, changed, and that our eyes have been opened of the truth of who we are in you. The truth of your purposes and plans for us individually, 
us corporately as a church, and Lord, us as the people of God in this nation, in the world, Lord, open our eyes to all that you have for us, that we may walk into your plans and purposes, that we might step out in faith to fulfill your purposes and plans. Jesus, we love you. We love you for all that you are. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the bread of life. Come, Holy Spirit, speak to us now. Amen. Amen. Great. Okay, so this particular passage, John chapter 6, as it says in verse 1, it happens sometime after Jesus performs. We heard uh, last week about Jesus performed the miracle and the healing at the pool of Bethesda. When uh, Jesus heals a man who's, who's been crippled, who can't walk, and he's been in that condition for 38 years, and Jesus heals him, he gets up and walks. It's at this time where there's a large crowd that's been gathered around him, and this large crowd um, have been gathered around mainly because they've seen, as John says in the Gospel, they've seen the miraculous signs that Jesus has been performing on the sick. You know, and, and the, the beginning of this chapter sets out very clearly, I think, what Jesus goes on to talk about later on in the chapter. These crowds were really impressed with what they saw Jesus doing. They loved seeing these miracles. So this large crowd was following Jesus, we see at the beginning of John here, mainly because of what they saw Jesus doing. Now, I just want to set the scene a little bit practically of where this took place. So here we have the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus had made his way um, to, he was at the Sea of Galilee, and it says that he'd made his way to the far side of this particular sea. So the far side would have been on the right-hand side of uh, the map here. So it would have been this sort of area on the right. And um, the reason he went there was to really get a bit of space, because he was, um, he'd, he'd, you know, like Jesus, he was human, he got tired, and he was retreating to get away, to get a bit of space with his disciples. It had come just after, it says in Matthew, and one of the other Gospels, Mark, that Jesus, that, it just said that, his, um, that John the Baptist had just been beheaded. So he was wanting to get a bit of space, get away from the people to get to somewhere which was quiet. And the area was, as I say, to the right, to Bethesda, just to the right of there. And it was a place where he was wanting to get away. Now, obviously, the crowds were following him. And as he was sitting on the mountainsides with his disciples, he saw the crowds coming towards him. Now, it says there is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, a lot of you may know already that 5,000, that actually represented the men. Um, so the women and children, there was probably about 20,000 people altogether following Jesus to this mountainside. So he probably saw them coming from a long way off. And it was probably like, oh my goodness, here they come. And, um, you know, so, and it was a time, and it's very significant that the Passover feast was near. And it's interesting that he should choose this time to be away from Jerusalem Judea, where probably all the action was, where a lot of the Jews were. But a lot of these Jews had chosen to follow him to this mountainside. 
So the, the area um, is known as the Golan Heights today. And so there were several, several mountain ranges on the right-hand side of the lake here. So as you can see, the Sea of Galilee isn't that big. I mean, seven miles, it's very easy to see from one side to the other. So it's not a big sea, it's, it's probably more like a lake. And um, now, let's have a look here. So what's... Yeah. So what I wanted to highlight here, that there is much more going on than the feeding of the 5,000 in this particular passage. Now, it was interesting as I was looking at this passage, because I've always known the feeding of 5,000 to be a wonderful story. I mean, it is, isn't it? It's a wonderful miracle of Jesus feeding 20,000 people. But actually, when John wrote this particular chapter, he was wanting us to get a hold of something far greater in that these um, followers that were following Jesus were following him to have their feel, but actually John was wanting us to get a hold of the fact that Jesus was in back the feel that they were needing and le- le- needing to look for. So I want us to spend some time this morning getting into the hearts and minds of these 20,000 people who were following Jesus to this hillside. Now Jesus knows full well that they're They're not coming because they understand, you know, with this whole series that Jesus is at the center. They're not coming for that reason. They're not coming because Jesus is, you know, this wonderful turning point in the history of mankind. You know, they don't have an understanding that he is this sacrifice for their sin. But even even with that, you know, Jesus knowing their hearts, he doesn't turn them away. You know, he in fact has compassion on them. And if you again look at Matthew's God, it's interesting that all four Gospels, this is the only miracle that all four Gospels actually um, tell. This particular one, it's the only one. And it's interesting that, you know, and, and Matthew gives a lot more detail where he says as well that, you know, that Jesus spent quite a bit of time healing the sick of those that come, of these 20,000. Jesus... He was exhausted and tired. He was perhaps feeling, um, you know, the loss of, of John. And yet he still had an open hand, an open heart to all those who were coming to him. Now, these people coming, they were coming in the first instance because they knew that Jesus made people well. Jesus healed people as he does today. And also as they discover with this wonderful miracle that Jesus can conjure up a meal and feed lots of people. So what a wonderful guy to be around, if you ask me. They come and seek satisfaction and fill from Jesus from not because of who he is, but because of what he can do. And there's a huge difference. You know, These followers of Jesus at this stage are purely satisfied with the external demonstration of what Jesus has been able to do. You know, and this is really made clear from the verse, um, chapter 6, verse 15, where, you know, the people, they say that Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. These people had no idea that the kingdom of God is not one that Jesus wants to take by force. You know, there were many Jews that were keen to get Jesus to take 
the kingdom of God by force. You know, the Jewish nation, you know, their understanding was that God led them out of Egypt into this place, this geographical place. And I think many of the Jewish nation were wanting that again. They wanted a place that they could call home that God would lead to them. And perhaps some of them were wanting that again. They saw with natural eyes, not with the spiritual eyes, that God wants to um, outwork his purposes and plans. They were blind to the, what exactly Jesus had come to do. So I just want to spend a moment thinking about, actually, who are these people? Who are these people? Who are these 20,000 people that have opted to follow Jesus to this place? Well, to be fair, the Bible isn't that clear of who they are. But we can, from what has already happened, we can sort of get some idea who they were. They were pretty much all, I would say, definitely Jews. There may have been a few Samaritans because many believed in Jesus at the well. Perhaps some were from uh, neighboring towns and villages. But, but when we look at this account in Matthew, Matthew intimates that they could go there to buy food rather than go home and cook for themselves. So that would perhaps intimate that they came from further away. Some may have been uh, Judeans, and um, Jesus had been to Jerusalem, as we knew, and, and Judea was the other side of the Sea of Galilee and, and a bit further down from the map on the left. Jesus had performed miracles there, and so many would have been impressed by what they saw. And they would have seen this dynamic Jewish leader and thought, my word, this is somebody we should follow. John tells us that, um, you know, that many of the Galileans would have seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem. So there may have been many from Galilee that were part of this 20,000. So they were probably from a lot of the areas all around the Sea of Galilee. But what we do know, what we definitely do know about these followers is that they would have left their homes to be with Jesus. They would have left where they were living to listen and hear this man who demonstrated power and authority. There was something different about this man Jesus that cannot be denied. Even if they knew nothing of his sacrificial promise to come, there was something different about this man that they wanted to follow, that they would never have seen in someone ever like it before. So I would argue that many in this crowd were not looking for a man to save their souls. They were looking for a man to make their lives better, to give them something, a feel for their needs, a, a sort of a, to the next meal, the next, you know, even a nation of their own, a place that they could call home. They were looking for something for themselves to make themselves and their lives better. So it was for this reason I think they continued to follow Jesus. And they end up chasing Jesus around the lake. They go from this mountainside where Jesus was obviously um, there and, and feeds all of them. And they go in boats. They, these boats turn up and they get on these boats and then they go around to Capernaum looking for him. And then what happens next is instead 
of, um, they asked the question. So if you look at the question that they asked, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Because that Jesus had disappeared and they wondered where he'd gone. And Jesus, instead of answering their question and explaining how he got there, he, he says this, he's, you know, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate loaves and had your fill. You know, I think what Jesus is doing here, he doesn't beat around the bush. He speaks right into their hearts. He doesn't try and answer their questions. He speaks right into their hearts. He goes straight, I would say, for the jugular, as we hear a bit later on when he talks, says some things which are a bit controversial. You know, he doesn't beat around the bush. And then he goes on to say, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. I think that those 10 or so words are almost the turning point of this whole chapter. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And my challenge to us today is, are we working for food that spoils or food that endures for eternal life? And only you can answer that question. Because I know in my life, there are times when I work for food that spoils. And I want to be somebody that works for food that endures to eternal life. Don't you? I want to be somebody that actually I know that what I'm about, what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis is giving glory to the living God. And I'm working for food that endures to eternal life. That I know that Jesus is my bread. That I'm being sustained by this wonderful person who directs my path, who gives me sustenance to get through, and to not just get through, but to be um, fulfilled and to be, um, it's a phrase that I'm thinking of and it's not come to mind, but to be that person that is just outworking all that God has got for me. What a wonderful, wonderful place to be. But you know, I think what happened when Jesus said this is that straight away, when you hear truth, you can respond in two ways. You can respond and go, great, I'm going to take that and, and run with it. Or something else happens. And sometimes the, one of the things that first gets damaged when we hear something that cuts to the heart is our pride. And I think that's what happened in this passage. I think these followers of Jesus were like quite happy with having their fill, having the manna, having this wonderful fill, uh, the feeding. But I think there's something happened when they heard this, like, well, hold on a minute. That means something that I don't understand. And I think that the pride suddenly comes upon them. And pride is a feeling of deep reliance on self. A deep reliance on one's own achievements and what you achieved and, you know, it's all about yourself, really. And pride rears its ugly head in, in, <laughs> in my life more than I care to admit. You know, I, I'm sure there are moments every, I would say every day, probably every day, that I would say that pride gets hold of me and I'm like, okay, you know, I need to just step back here and, and humbly just take on board either what someone's saying or you know, a situation that I'm trying to either control or to 
um, make happen. Because I'm trying to see my world um, impact the world around me rather than allowing God to impact the world around me. And John Stott said this about pride. He said, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. You know, I, I know that in my heart, I have a lot more to learn about humility. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin. You know, he takes it that step further. And he says this in his book, Mere Christianity. Sexual immorality, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea, flea bites in comparison with pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. If you think about that, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads us to every other vice, and it's the complete anti-God state of mind. And so I think it is with this crowd too. When challenged by Jesus, that all they need to do is believe in the one that God has sent, namely himself. Do you know what they respond in this passage? What do they respond? Well, they respond with this, you know, what miracle will you do so that we will believe you? They say, what will you do, Jesus, so that we will believe in you? They don't think that it's a thing they have to make a decision about, that they have to humble themselves and realize that actually the only way to know God is through this man, Jesus. And what Jesus says, you need to believe in me. You need to believe in me. And they say, well, now hold on a minute, Jesus. No, no, no. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? No, no, no. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. Because our decision to follow Christ, to receive that sense of total forgiveness because of the cross, is how we are children of God. That's how we are children of God. And I think these followers actually were at a point where, hold on a minute, Jesus, I don't know if I want that. They deflect the matter of the heart off themselves and they try and put it back onto Jesus. The moment here that they can find eternal peace and hope, they deflect the matter away from their heart. Now, for the rest of this chapter... John gives us this wonderful narrative of Jesus declaring that he is indeed the um, bread of life, that he is the Son of God, and whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Now, you know, I, I can't emphasize that enough, that this chapter is a really significant chapter which emphasizes that the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ, as we come on to in a moment. He's the only one, as we learned at the Samaritans well, he's the only one that can give us this water supply that will never run out. And as we see here, Jesus provides a food that will never run out as well. A food that will satisfy our soul, not the stomach. 
You know, when you get to this point in John, and if your heart is open to the possibility that this is the truth, that this indeed could be true, the possibility of that, I, I, I think that it would just blow you away. I think I have heard of people who have read John's Gospel and decided to follow Jesus as a result of reading this. It's powerful stuff that we're reading here about the kingdom of God and how to know eternal life, to how to know what it is to believe and to follow Jesus. You know, this is what Jesus said to them, this crowd of people. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You know, that's it, to believe in Jesus. You know, and I think sometimes, you know, we forget that. I think you know, our church values, our six church values. Who knows what the six church values are? Quiet. No, you're not allowed to say. The six church values. Six church values. We did a whole series in January. Wonderful, Kieran. Grace. We'll hear more about that in a moment. Giving. Gifts. Right, we're going we're gonna to promote you. Uh, no. Um, yes, yeah, so grace, giving, gifts. We have six Gs that we value as a church, you know, and actually, you know, I would say, you know, just, um, what I say we've got, let's get them all, grace, gifts, giving, groups, going, and growth, there you go, wonderful, Uh, yeah, isn't that great, yeah, that's it, that's what our values are, and you know, those are the things that we value that we see as important, and one of those is grace, you know, and I think that, you know, it says here that the, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. I think sometimes we think that we try and earn our place in the kingdom of heaven, our place in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying the one thing we need to do is just believe in Jesus. And this is the wonderful good news, the scandal of grace, that we don't actually need to do anything to earn this place that we have in heaven. We don't need to do anything. The one thing we need to do actually is believe in him. Believe in the one that was sent by God. And sometimes, you know, in our hearts, I mean, mean, you might not think this as a conscious thought, but but in our hearts we think, oh yes, no, there must be more. You know, there must be more. I, I must need to do stuff in order to earn this place that God has given me. And sometimes we can get on a bit of a treadmill or we can get into bad habits and try and earn that. And actually, there's nothing you can do to earn that place in heaven, whatever that looks like. And I think that's a wonderful freeing truth. And I felt as I was preparing this over this last week that 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 is a truth for us this morning, for even individuals here this morning that just receive that truth of grace, that good news that you have received eternal life just by believing in Jesus. Actually, if you did nothing more from this day forward, nothing, you are a child of God. You are received into heaven. What a wonderful truth that is. So, as we go through the chapter, the crowd then compares Jesus with Moses. And you know, again, just in their minds, they're trying to, trying to fit in their minds of who, who this man is. So they compare him with Moses. And so some of them may perhaps think of him as another prophet come to lead them. You know, as Moses led God's people through the desert. 
You know, and if you know that story, God provided for God's people every day by this food coming from heaven. And it was a real provision of God. It was a miracle that happened every day as they went through the Sinai area. So they went through that area before they went to the promised land. And many of the people that were following Jesus at this point thought, well, actually, wouldn't it be great if this happens again? That this man is sent by God and he's going to lead us into our wonderful um, promises of God. But this wasn't God's plan. The miracle of the feeding of 5,000 was to point the crowds not to finding their fill and their satisfaction physically, but in finding their fill spiritually. I found this wonderful quote from John Piper, who's a wonderful man to quote, because he comes out with some absolute gems. But he said this, Jesus came into the world not to give bread, but to be bread. Jesus is bread. So here we come on to this last bit I wanted to cover, which, you know, again, in some ways, we see parallels to the Samaritan woman at the well, where the Samaritan woman says, Sir, give me this water so I won't go thirsty. And the crowd here say, Sir, from now on, give us this bread. So they've got some understanding that Jesus is referring to a bread that isn't just going to satisfy their stomachs. But what happens is that unlike the Samaritan woman, whose heart was open to receive the truth, so she responded to Jesus when he told her that, um, about where, he, where she can get the water from. These followers, as we see, began to grumble in verse 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves. And also... Um, yeah, now let's, let's leave it there. Uh, no, 41. At this time, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. These guys, they didn't like what Jesus was saying. I mean, grumbling is not a good thing. And their hearts are being challenged because Jesus was saying something that was actually quite controversial and still controversial today. People don't want to know a man about a man who can give them eternal life. Yet if hearts are open, people will receive this truth, that Jesus is indeed the way to know God. So they began to grumble. They didn't like what he said. Jesus cuts to the heart, and then he talks of this. He says this, Those who believe in me will eat my flesh and drink my blood. An interesting thing to say to a group of people. I'm not sure you're going to make many friends by saying that sort of statement. Now, as Christians today, our minds probably are taken to the Last Supper. You know, and how Jesus was with his disciples, very last Passover meal. And again, the reference here that this was near the Passover is very significant. At the last part, Jesus' last meal, they broke bread and he shared it with his disciples. And they had the wine and he said, drink this in remembrance of me. There was something very symbolic 
about this act that Jesus was explaining to these disciples. You know, we can almost, um, we can almost attach, in some ways, the similarities of this to when Jesus talks about, I will destroy the temple. The temple will be destroyed and I will rebuild it in three days. I mean, the, the, the sort of metaphoric way that Jesus is talking about who he is and just the symbolic reference to his body and blood being shed and broken is very powerful. Very powerful. You know, in this context, though, these followers, you know, they predate the last summer. They, they, obviously, that hasn't happened yet. You know, they're following a man who think they're, get, he's got, they're going to get the next meal from him. You know, I read um, as I was preparing for this that for Jesus to say that I am the living bread that came down from heaven, to these Jewish followers was impenetrable at best and blatantly offensive at worst. It's pretty hardcore stuff that Jesus was saying to this 20,000 people. There were many times Jesus had to escape for his life because of some of the things that he was saying. It was pretty strong stuff. We're talking about here, he was radical with the message of the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but that's challenging for me. How radical am I when it comes to speaking about the kingdom of God? And that's just when he says, I'm the living bread. That's it. I'm the living bread. Oh my goodness me. But then Jesus, for then Jesus to add, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That is possibly one of the most offensive things that he could have said to a Jew at this time. It would have been an intuitively abhorrent notion. You know, and the other thing I wanted to add on this is the symbolic reference of blood in the Bible throughout the whole Bible is not of life. So, Jewish followers, some of the Jewish followers who would have known the scripture, would have known the significance of, of blood throughout the scripture, was it's not one of life, it's one of violent death and often relates to sacrificial end. Now, obviously, now we can make sense of that because Jesus died on the cross and rose again. But for them, it's like, what is this guy? talking about I'd even go as far as to say when, this, when uh, John describes this that the disciples didn't really understand Jesus either you know in verse 68 when Jesus asks them if they want to leave they say Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life you know actually, like, actually you know what this is hard what you're saying, but actually what you're saying speaks to our hearts. It's eternal. It's true. What you're saying is true. You know, and the one thing I would say about the disciples is that because their heart had been impacted by Jesus, they trusted him. They trusted him. And you know, we can trust Jesus today as well. We can trust him with this. This mystery of this um, sacrament of, of breaking bread and drinking wine. We, you know, it's, it's a wonderful spiritual and symbolic act of what Jesus did for us on the cross. 
and the wonderful thing um, that it brings freedom and life to us. The language that Jesus must have used would have been strange, vivid and horrific. And the disciples knew nothing of the sacrament of of communion. Yet they trusted totally in Jesus and had faith in him. Wonderful. I want us to just uh, spend a moment now thinking uh, about how some of these things might apply to us. Have we ever been like the crowd? They were committed Jews. Some of them would have known the Torah, the book of God, the stories of God leading their people. And looking at this point, these followers looking for someone or something to forcefully advance the kingdom of God. Looking for something to satisfy their bellies. Perhaps, you know, going through the motions, following the crowd, looking for more food, looking for manna, like the um, Israelites did in the desert. But the only only one thing that will satisfy is Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who gives us eternal food every single day of our lives. We will never go hungry because of Jesus. How hungry are you this morning? Are you hungry for more of God? Are there three things that perhaps need to be surrendered that you know that, um, that you need to lay down in your hearts right now, things that you're holding on to? As we said earlier, food that spoils, that we need to lay down before the foot of the cross. As Christians, I think that there's grasping how pride can be at the centre of our hearts at different times and in different situations. And my encouragement to us all is to seek to take on humility. To be like Christ, humility is our greatest friend. And, and again, I'm just going to read this. I read this and I thought it was fantastic. Humility increases our hunger for God's word. It opens our hearts to his spirit. It leads us to intimacy with God. And it imparts the aroma of Christ to all whom we encounter. I think the more humility that we take on, I think the more people will see of Jesus in each one of us. I think, you know, the more I spend with people, that I think, wow, aren't they a wonderful representation of Jesus? It's actually, the thing is, is because the humility that's in their hearts. I think humility is the greatest sign of God's kingdom here on earth amongst the people of God. And finally, do we know the grace of God? Do we know the complete acceptance and forgiveness of sin once and for all on the cross, for all eternity? You may have been a Christian for some time, but 
you may not feel completely accepted, completely free and receiving of the grace of God. And I want us not to go away from here this morning. If you're not experiencing and not knowing that wonderful freedom of the grace of God in your life, because it's a wonderful thing to walk into and to know.